Why is it that the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, a state-level think tank, is hosting an event on China? Well, the very simple answer to that is because people in Mississippi are very concerned about China. And I think um, for several decades, it seemed to me that all the clever people in Washington seemed to think that the way forward was for the United States to engage with China as a partner. I remember a succession of leaders on both sides of the Atlantic talking about the need to engage with China. Um, Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, uh, the, the Bushes. The idea was, I think, that as China developed, it would become part of the international order, and those tens of millions of middle-class Chinese would make China increasingly like the West. I think it's probably fair to say that things haven't quite turned out the way we were told they would. And there's growing concern now that perhaps China is not growing to be like us, but is growing to be very different to us and a, a challenge to us. Far from joining the international order, I think there's a growing realization that China actually wants to pretty much overturn the international order. To talk to us about this today, I think are literally the two best voices to listen to on China in the United States. Uh, Michael Pillsbury is a best-selling author. He hasn't just written a book that was a bestseller on China. It was a best-selling book in the United States, the best-selling book in the United States on China. It's called um, The Hundred Year Marathon. And I strongly recommend you read it. It actually changed my, my view of China. Um, I used to think, like many, that uh, you know, with the end of the Cold War, the Western way would prevail. It actually provides a lot of food for thought about the extent to which China has a geopolitical strategy aimed at um, overturning the Western order. Um, I said earlier, and again, it's not my words, um, is Donald Trump who declared on Fox News one evening um, that uh, Michael Pillsbury was America's greatest expert on China. And it's, it's wonderful to have him here in a few moments to, to talk to us. And then, of course, following him, our Senator Roger Wicker. Um, I literally think that there is no one in the Senate doing more to make sure that the United States is prepared for the challenges that lie ahead than our Senator. Um, I think there is, in fact, probably no Senator in uh, Washington who is more true to the Ronald Reagan vision of the United States. And it's a great privilege to welcome both of them to speak to us here this afternoon. Thank you. Michael, would you like to... See this cane? At my age, don't ride a horse and don't play tennis. <laughs> and don't get married to a royal ballerina. Okay, we're a small enough group and Senator Wicker is here. That I'm gonna give you a choice of what I talk about. I do not have like a 20 page text uh, to read off slowly. I do have this book here. So option one, we're gonna have a show of hands. Option one, this book takes nine and a half hours to read out loud if you buy the audible version. <laughs> so if I take even 30 minutes, Senator, I could read the, probably the first chapter. How many want to hear your guest speaker today read from his book slowly? Put your hand up. Oh, number two option. This book has a lot of stuff in it about spying, the spy business. Our spy business, the Chinese spy business. Who wants to hear some spy stories? Put your hand up. Senator. <laughs> well, how many choices do we get? <laughs> the third choice is I could spend most of my time praising Senator Roger Wicker. <laughs> he did a speech on China recently, it's online. I tried to log in this morning to refresh my memory on your speech, Senator, and it up comes this thing saying, security alert, you are not allowed access. So I don't know what that means. Heather Davis logged in, she found it. But there's a reason. <laughs> no, I don't use TikTok. So the Senator is a hero in the Senate, not just for his China work, but 
for his guidance of the Senate Armed Services Committee, currently under occupation by the Democrats, but this could change, in which case, if Senator Wicker wins his primary, he will be the leading voice in the Congress on our defense strategy and what to do with our $800 billion. And to his credit, he got $1 billion. This is from your office press release. He got $1 billion for a new uh, Marine Corps-wished amphibious landing ship. I think it's built in California, isn't it? Oh, is it, it built in Mississippi? Okay. Show of hands, how many of you want to hear me praise Senator Wicker for half an hour? There's quite a few. <laughs> quite a few. Finally, option four, we could talk about what's happening now on China policy in Washington, D.C. And it's a disgrace. We are basically paralyzed. And I can tell you the story of a congressman, Senator Wicker can give his views on it, named Patrick McHenry. And he has done some really pro-China stuff in the past month. So we could talk about the overall situation in Washington, D.C., which is largely one of paralysis toward China. Show of hands, how many want to hear about paralysis in Washington, D.C.? Uh, Mrs. Roger Wicker. <laughs> okay, you know who won? The spy stories. So first, let me teach you a Chinese phrase. You can show off to your friends, or if you visit China, you can use it. Uh, who is up for learning a Chinese phrase? Very important, it's only three words. Give you the heart of Chinese strategy toward America. President Donald Trump repeated it several times. He got it right. So you'll be following the footsteps of President Trump. You ready? First word, fa. Let's say it, fa. Actually, it's third tone, so it'll be fa, like that. Chinese is a tonal language. Fa means to block, to counter, to prevent from happening. Second word, qi. Good, this is a very good group. Qi means his, his, or their, in this case. Mo, third tone, again, mo, like that. Mow the lawn. Put it all together, you get fa, chi, mo. Pretty good, huh? Counter his strategy. So the first requirement of strategy in Chinese cultural history is anything you're doing, whether it's negotiations for real estate or making deals for hedge fund investment, first requirement is what? You've got to know the opponent's strategy. Now often the opponent keeps his strategy secret because he knows you might try to manipulate him. So to block his strategy, if you're the Chinese leadership, I hope that phone ringing isn't Mr. Trump. <laughs> Knowing that, shift to Honolulu, Hawaii, Hilton Waikiki Hotel. Every year our Indo-Pacific Command hosts a two or three day conference. A lot of military officers come to it. Uh, it's open, it's unclassified conference. Probably up to 500 or more. And to understand the scene in the row of seats in front of the speaker, you have to know a little bit about war planning, American war planning. Our most secret material in the government, or among the most secret materials in the government, are war plans. And war plans are worked on at what's called the combatant commanders uh, by a team in what's called J-5. It's a physical place, J-5, in Honolulu. And then there's a special section of J-5 called J-5-4. It's behind a big wall, double wall. Nobody goes in unless they're authorized. It's the most sensitive war planning against China. And there was a retired army colonel there, recently divorced. His friends say he was depressed. Yes, he worked in J-5-4. He came to the conference. Why not? You could hear geopolitical thinkers and professors and people talk. 
To his left, he glanced over. One of the most beautiful women he'd ever seen in his life. He introduced himself. Hi, my name's Ben Bishop. What's yours? Miss Lee. Now, I'm reading from the FBI affidavit presented at his trial for espionage. He and Miss Lee, the FBI puts it, became romantically involved. Now, I don't know what that means, but the FBI didn't like it. So Miss Lee allegedly told Mr. Bishop, I'm getting my master's degree in Washington, D.C. Oh, what's your master's thesis topic? American military strategy toward China. Oh, really? How are you doing? Sir, uh, it's very difficult. There are not a lot of sources on this for my master's degree. <laughs> I swear this is from the FBI affidavit. So Mr. Bishop thought he could help her. Things go on for about a year. Ultimately, he gets arrested. They go to his home. Half of what he gave Miss Lee is there, because she's a frequent visitor when she could come back to Honolulu. He says, that's not all. I gave her quite a bit more, but she, she took that with her. Well, what was it? And the FBI lists these documents at the trial. Number one, American war plan for China. Top secret. Number two, DOD long-term strategy toward China. Top secret. Very, very long list. Pretty much everything. So now go back for a second to Fa Chi Mo. Did they do a pretty good job of learning our Mo? Yes. In fact, I was in the Pentagon at the time, and we had got a lot of phone calls from various parts of the government, State Department in particular. What is all this at the Bishop trial? We didn't know there was a DOD strategy toward China. And the initial response, Senator Wicker, was not good. The initial response was, no, there isn't any DOD strategy. We certainly would have shared it with the State Department. <laughs> and the gentleman called back and said, no, no, it's in the FBI affidavit. <laughs> Chinese have it, but the State Department can't have it. So this was all under the Obama administration. He only got five years in prison because he voluntarily uh, cooperated and exposed all this. But what about on the Fa side? What did China start doing after this? They were already doing quite a few things. But one of their main talking points, they told everybody, Senate delegations to China, CIA, uh, American ambassador, American presidents, China has no ambition to replace America. And then there's many reasons why that's the case. They love to say we're not qualified. <laughs> but slowly it became clear, and that became the subtitle of my book, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as Leader of the World. And there's a problem when you write a book, if you've been exposed to a lot of government material I had, for better or for worse, I had been at the CIA and the Pentagon and a staffer for a friend of Senator Wicker's named Warren Hatch. So I had to submit this book for security review. And if you, if you win one of the copies I'm gonna give away today, you'll see I thank the CIA for cutting out from the book things that would hurt uh, operational missions. So you're seeing the cut version. But the cut version goes through a lot of, on the American side, Fachi Mo, it goes through what America has tried to do toward China, beginning way back in 1943. And it has a lot of declassified documents from the Reagan administration that were signed by President Reagan. President Reagan, though I worked on his campaign, on his transition team and in his Pentagon, he, I think he was our greatest anti-communist president of all time. Also very smart, smarter than many of his advisors, which he concealed. You would never do that to your staff, I hope. <laughs> so Reagan decided to get China on our side, the beginning of which had started under Nixon and, and Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter. We need to find out what they really want. 
How do we get leverage over China? It's very the same question Mr. Trump asked. And President Reagan signed documents transferring six weapon systems to China that they wanted, they picked out. One was torpedoes, our best torpedoes of the time, to the Chinese Navy. Intelligence sharing. CIA was told, you start sharing from, with Chinese intelligence. CIA would say, no, we can't do that. <laughs> They're the opponent. No, you will share with them. We will have a station chief and a large CIA operation in China, and they'll have one here. So the foundation that had been laid by Kissinger and Nixon was now expanded to really deep security cooperation, more so than with NATO, more so than with the British. So we began to essentially spy together with the Chinese and sell them weapons and praise them to the skies. And one more thing, this has turned out to be the most important part of all this, give a wink to the American business community, you guys need to invest in China. So there began what may be as big as a $4 trillion investment in China by Wall Street and American companies. Nothing unpatriotic about it. In fact, they were doing what the US government was recommending they do. So fast forward to today, there's more spy stories if you want, but fast forward to today, that structure still exists. We still believe, our, our deep state that I'm frankly a part of, we still believe today we should have the largest embassy in the world, the largest American embassy in the world is in Beijing, 2,300. 50 federal agencies are in that embassy. All of them have the mission to assist China in one way or another. Businessmen are still encouraged to invest in China. You hear a lot about decoupling, let's decouple, you know, we have to get out of there. Very little is happening. A lot of talk about decoupling, no real decoupling. So here's these two strategies, these two mo in conflict. I've mentioned a little bit about the Chinese approach. They realized early on in the 70s that they were technologically backward. They had almost no serious science, uh, not even a ministry of science and technology, no DARPA. They didn't know what DARPA was. So what do you suppose happened? over a 15, 20 year period. The United States government opened up everything. We said, you guys need to develop a federal aviation agency and we'll help you with safety standards so you can build airliners. Now these airliners compete with Boeing. You think the Chinese said no? I said, yes, absolutely. Now I was in Beijing in October. I went over to our embassy. I've been there a lot <laughs> over the last 40 years or so. A very funny thing happened. I, they said, who did you see here in China? I said, well, Xi Jinping's right-hand man for America. We had a dinner together. They said, yes, we've heard that from the Chinese. They said, this is a three-hour dinner. I said, yes, that's right. What were you doing? I said, well, they were telling me all the mistakes in 100-year marathon in the book. Because why? Because they now believe that unless they can help Biden more, Trump is going to be the next American president. And Trump began several things that are very little known in his fa chi mo toward China. He basically said, let me get this right. 50 government agencies are helping China? Yes, sir. And he turned to the head of Office of Management and Budget, who's a former Heritage Action president. He said, I want to find out what these programs are. Start canceling them. One of the first ones he found out, and this Biden has continued this, he found out that we have many, many written agreements to share American scientific discoveries immediately with China. And a National, Foundation, National Science Foundation office in Beijing to do this, a minister counselor in our embassy, and the Chinese have been known to complain. They read something about nanotechnology or quantum or some super, super computer. 
in the newspaper. And they contact the American Embassy and say, we have not received those documents yet. So some members of the House and a few senators wrote a letter, tried to block this, because this agreement requires renewal every 10 years, this give away all American science agreement. And the Chinese got very upset. They need this for their economic growth. Guess what happened? The Biden administration said to the relevant members of the House and Senate, how about a, just a six month extension so we can keep this going and we'll renegotiate it so we don't give away too much money and science. So that's what's under negotiation right now. That's one of the hottest issues in US-China relations. Because the symbolism, if we cut off the science exchange program, that is like a dagger at the heart of Chinese economic growth, if we cut it all off. Now, there's ways around it. Other legislation would be needed. But I bring this to your attention because I never saw Trump getting any credit for this. And nobody really pushed back except one agency. You can guess. Who, guessed, who can guess the agency that pushed back? So, no, we, we, we want these agreements to continue. The National Science Foundation. Because why? Because China shares their scientific achievements with us. So you take this times 50, and you take the roughly $3 trillion still invested in China by us, private money, hedge fund money, uh, private equity, and you find out another policy issue where Senator Wicker's been a hero. I think it's 91 senators voted in favor of something which then got blocked in the House. It turns out that if a company, if all of us have $500 million and we want to invest in a Chinese firm, do we have to tell the US government about that? You'd think you would. Suppose it's a Chinese firm that makes rockets or Navy ships, competition to Pascagoula. This actually has been going on. The companies keep secret from the government, for good reason, the American companies. Because they, they have a little suspicion that if the government knew what they were doing, it might put a halt to it. So there's legislation drafted. Let's stop. It was a Heritage Foundation recommendation. It's in my book. Let's at least make the companies report what they're doing, let alone put restrictions on. As I say, pass the Senate, 91 senators gets to the House, a little known, but I think quite conservative, House member from North Carolina, I mentioned his name earlier, McHenry. He gets the Republican subcommittee chairman on his House Finance Committee to write a letter, which is just a letter, but then he goes in person to the House Senate NDAA negotiations and strips out not only that requirement to report, but several other things as well. Why would he do this? It's a great American. He's retiring from Congress. Why would he do this? He put out a list of reasons, and Heritage put out a fact sheet rebutting each of his reasons. But that's what I mean by paralysis. In the book, and other people as well, Senator Wicker's own speeches, there are many things we'd have to do to fa chi mo against China, if we even knew their mo. <laughs> if we even knew their mo. Very little is being done. When something does get proposed, it very often gets blocked in a very sophisticated way. It's not the Chinese ambassador showing up, you know, to say something or say, here's give a million dollars to a decision maker. It's very subtle, very indirect, and probably one of the most important things Heritage Foundation is trying to do now, together with the FBI, is track Chinese lobbying, if that's the right word for it. And often it isn't a direct lobbying. Hi, my name is Ambassador Wong. Could you please, you know, not vote for this Uyghur cotton? And it doesn't happen like that. Easy measures that everybody's for get passed, the House and the Senate. Or the Biden White House will do something about it. But the most important things to protect from our own, for our own national security, we don't even know what they are. And some friends of mine in the FBI, it didn't used to be a friendly relationship between the FBI and CIA. It used to be kind of hostile, because the FBI thinks CIA are committing crimes, 
CIA says, yes, we are, but it's only overseas. And the FBI says, no, we think you, you know, do stuff here, too. But there's some cooperation increasing between CIA and FBI on China just to learn what is the mo they have to penetrate our system. First thing we find out, there's 400,000 Chinese students in America. Where are they? Some of them are wiring back, or emailing back, the most advanced research in chemistry, metallurgy, you name it, to their home institution. It's sort of legal. So there's an effort now to redefine what's called the Foreign Agents Registration Act. That if you do something to help China now, if you're Goldman Sachs, and you do something to help China, it's considered okay as long as there's no uh, written contract where the Chinese say, I will give you a million dollars a year, you make sure nothing bad comes out of the Congress. If you do that without registration, and it's easy to register, it takes, it's right online, you can put in, you know, Michael Pillsbury, $1 million, lobby for China, no problem if you register. But most of this lobbying is not registered. So the FBI says you, we need to tighten up the legislation so it's, a better, so it's more clear what lobbying for China is. That's a heritage position, by the way. So I don't think I've praised Senator Wicker enough, but my time is up. Would you grant me one more minute? What it means to stand up the way Senator Worker has on China, it means some of your colleagues begin to get a little concerned about you. Because the train or the momentum of continuing to help China is still largely the consensus in Washington, D.C. So I want to be a donor to your primary campaign within a couple hours, frankly. Uh, but you guys should be really appreciative of your senator. I think. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'll give you another 10 minutes. <laughs> oh, and the books are up here. So what's the contest going to be? Q&A, whoever asks the toughest questions gets a free book. Gail, you've got all this time to think. Now, um, Gordon Fellows, you're here. You, you speak Mandarin. Right. Uh, okay. Good. Well, and and you learned that at in the um, um, Croft Institute of International Studies, and you you worked in China for a time, and you concluded, as did Mr. Pillsbury, that there was there was not much future, and you came back, and uh, you're running banks now. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I was just trying to think of someone uh, other than, than our son, McDaniel, who also graduated from that program, who might have known Va Chi Mo uh, um, with, a, with, with a little southern kind of a drawl in it. Uh, where, does, where do I start? Where do I start? Uh, boy, spy stories are, are great. Um, but I'm a, I'm a simple guy. Um, I, I want to build more ships. I want to build more submarines. I, I want us to fulfill our national security strategy. And you know, uh, we have, as Mr. Pillsbury will tell you, we have a national security strategy that's published. Anybody can buy it. You can go online. Uh, it's out there. And, and we deliberately year after year after year, decide not to put the resources to our national defense and our national security establishment to, um, to, to fulfill the national security strategy. Um, so, you know, I didn't realize, Douglas, that this, that, that this group is a sort of a subset, a state subset of heritage. Uh, and, and Heritage was very kind to ask me two or three weeks ago to, to uh, give uh, some remarks about national security. And it pains me to start with this. National uh, Heritage Foundation every year puts out a ratings of our national defense. It includes our ratings of our military service branches. 
and it comes out in January, so I, this was fresh fodder. The Heritage Report for this year just came out last month. It was called A Decade of Decline. Now, uh, that to me, that is directly related to the public officials that you are, you and I are voting for and electing and sending to Washington, D.C. A decade of decline. They rate all of the military services. And I don't know, uh, Mr. Pillsbury, if, if you are part of this, but only our Marine Corps was rated as strong by Heritage Foundation. So those of you in the Marines, uh, good for you. Army, marginal. Space Force, marginal. Navy, weak. What are we going to need in the Pacific? What are we really going to need a lot of? We're going to need a lot of Navy. Navy, weak. U.S. Air Force, that's my branch, very weak. Um, Space Force, marginal. Nu nuclear forces, marginal. And if you want to ask me later on, why is it important for us to uh, have a nuclear deterrence, I'll be glad to tell you that. You know, um, my dad, um, my dad actually spoke to the Jackson Club a year and a half ago, right in this very building. Uh, he was 98 at the time, and um, he, he did a pretty good job, I thought. But uh, he was talking about, he was showing some of the weapons that he had brought back from World War II. But he was talking about when he was in Hobbes Junior College on a Sunday afternoon in big black bottom, uh, just south of Goodman, picking up scaly barks. And he said, if you are out on a Sunday afternoon picking up scaly barks, you are just about out of anything to do. Uh, but that's what they were doing. He got back to the store, and somebody said that Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. And his response was, what's Pearl Harbor? Uh, but soon the world knew. And the story is that Admiral Yamamoto, as people around him in Japan were celebrating this great surprise attack, was somewhat sober, and the Admiral said, I fear we have succeeded in awaking a sleeping giant. And that turned out to be the truth. We got mobilized, and we were way behind absolutely way behind and then after losing all those ships and aircraft in the Pacific we were even further behind but we came into the war then and about that time Churchill said you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other possibility uh, it, it, it gets a chuckle and Churchill meant for it to get a chuckle but it was true wouldn't it be nice if, for once, we didn't play the role of a sleeping giant? Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to exhaust every other possibility before we do the right thing? And to me, doing the right thing is, uh, is giving the resources to the people who've stepped forward, civilian and military, to implement our national security strategy. Um, what are our challenges? We got uh, Russia would, uh, would love to keep continuing their designs on European countries, and they start with the unaffiliated ones and the, the weakest ones. We've got Iran who does not want a war with the United States, but they sure do want us to sort of decide to leave that area of the world. And if we leave that area of the world, we leave Israel in a lurch. And I, I, we may have difference of, of opinion around this state about any number of things, but the people of Mississippi want your delegation to support Israel. And, and we're going to do that. We're not going to leave that area. Uh, and so, it, so Iran 
gets proxies to do their work. And Mr. Pillsbury, they don't exactly tell them when to attack. They just give them what they need. And then if on a Saturday night in October, Hamas decides that that's when they will attack neighboring Israel, then Iran can have plausible deniability. We, we, of course, we support these folks, but we had no idea they were going to do this, and we had no idea they were going to try to shoot at, at uh, American and allied ships um, in, in the straits. That's the way Iran is trying to get us just to say um, we're, we're out of that area, and we're not going to do that. Uh, and then, of course, the pacing challenge is China. And, um, and uh, Admiral Paparo, who's going to be our new guy in Indo-Pacific, he said, China is able to launch an attack on us right now if they choose to. But maybe it isn't right now. Maybe it's two or three years from now. Uh, you know, the Japanese did a surprise attack on us, Pearl Harbor. China makes no bones about it. Who's the president of China? He's a good vote getter, I'll tell you. Uh, he wins election after election, and he's now president for life. Xi Jinping spoke to the Congress of China, Communist China, and said that it is his hope for China to be ready to invade Taiwan by the year 2027. So, you know, here we are, 2024, and moving on pretty quick. He wants China, so he has warned the world. He knew people were listening to that. He warned the world that that is um, his goal. But Admiral Paparo, who will be leading us, I think, very capably, um, very soon, we'll, we'll confirm him. And I uh, don't know his politics at all, but he believes in national defense. He says they could attack us um, any time now. So, what does uh, a guy from Mississippi who um, served in the Air Force for four years and in the Air Force Reserve for 20 years and, and uh, who only knows what um, he's seen and what he's told, what do we do? I think we, we look to the experts for our national security strategy. And as I said, we publish it um, in, in scholarly tomes about 10 times as thick as this. And, uh, and also, we send out um, every two or three years a survey to all of the admirals and generals around the world about what our requirements are. And so, um, oh goodness, was it six, seven, eight years ago uh, we got the majority. I was on the uh, Armed Services Committee, and Senator John McCain appointed me chair of the Sea Power Subcommittee. And yes, you know, we do make ships down in Pascagoula, Mississippi, but I'll tell you, they make them up in Maine uh, in the snow. It's amazing what those guys do. And on down in Rhode Island and Virginia and uh, around the coast, and then they make ships. Uh, and submarines and all that sort of thing all over the United States. And even if you're not in a state that, that, um, uh, that is on the seashore, you're ma we're making parts of submarines and parts of ships and parts of planes. We, we make military equipment all over the state of Mississippi. And uh, so anyway, I was thrilled to be chairman of the Sea Power Subcommittee back then. And... Um, and so I decided that we should try to make it part of the law of the land that the 355 ship requirement be put in the statute. And you'd be surprised the opposition I got to that. I, I mean, we've asked the top people around the world, generals, admirals, who are tasked with defending our nation, and they said, the requirement, actually 655, but our minimum requirement for ships is 355. And, and so I introduced the Ships Act and said, let's put it in the statute. And I had hearings. Now, uh, the first hearing, and, and so we bring in people from, uh, 
from the administration, the Obama administration. And uh, my first hearing was down in the skiff. Who knows what the skiff is? It's okay. It's this classified uh, room and uh, brought in some folks from the administration to testify about what they thought about Senator Wicker's ships act to make 355 official. And, and I was so glad that was a secret hearing because those witnesses were so pathetic. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, it was like they're just patting this young kid on the head, uh, you know, this good on you for trying and thinking, believe in that. But um, so we um, scolded them a bit and asked them, you know, if they really mean what they said. The next two hearings we had out in, in the open and they were a little better. And the chairman says, well, look, why don't we just put it as a sense of the Congress that this would be good. I said, let's put it in the statute. And so uh, it is, it's part of the law of the land. Uh, as you know, a lot of laws of the land aren't obeyed, and this one isn't either, because you've got to have the money behind it. But it is the law of the land that we have 355 ships in our Navy, and we need every one of them and more. China launched 30 ships last year. We launched, like, we launched at a rate of 1.5, but we're really minus two last year. So they're pl China's plus 30 ships last year. We're minus two. And the president says, uh, the president of China says, we'd like to be ready in a few years to invade Taiwan. Now, why Taiwan? Well, we've told Taiwan for 70 years they could rely on us. We've told Taiwan for 70 years that we'd be there for them. We kind of have to make it uh, ambiguous, so it's called strategic ambiguity. But everybody knows, and sometimes Biden forgets about this and, and blunders. But everybody knows that if China invades Taiwan, it's, it, we have a stake in that. Uh, the, the, the economy of the world goes through that area. And if China takes over Taiwan and causes a war, as it would, because Japan wouldn't stand for it, the Philippines wouldn't stand for it, Australia wouldn't stand for it, South Korea wouldn't stand, and, and on and on. And we would be expected to keep our end of the bargain. We would have a major, major war. It is our pacing threat. And, uh, and if that happened, we we're in a depression. So uh, we, we've got to be ready for that. And um, Phil Graham and I um, wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I guess it was, goodness, it's been a while, maybe a year and a half ago. We said we, we need to turn... Taiwan into a porcupine, and and actually I'm, I'm actually, actually kind of honored. People started talking about that. It's become a term of art. What? So why do we need to turn them into a porcupine? Is a porcupine a strong, ferocious animal that'll eat you? No. Um, but if a bear tries to attack a porcupine it's going to be very, very, very painful to that bear. And so after the first time, the, the, the bear will never do that again. That's the idea of making Taiwan strong enough with weapons that we make here in the United States and, uh, and our allies help with, that they could be a porcupine and Xi Jinping will decide we just better not do that. Um, in closing, before Dr. Pillsbury answers some questions, and I help, um, I'm so glad, Douglas, that, that you started off saying that, that this group in Mississippi and the parent group, the Heritage Foundation, are an optimistic group that think our best days are ahead of us. And I'll tell you, as I go around, you know, there are a lot of people who just think we're on decline and, and, and you know, I just have to say I absolutely we have to resist that and we have to believe that our best days are ahead we are if there's 
if there's not going to be a shining city on a hill called the United States, who's going to be that shining city on it? It won't be one. And so we've got to do it. But Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, and Gail and I were a young married couple in Washington. I was working for Trent Lott. And he took office, elected in 1980, and he had the simple thought that we will have peace through strength. And he said, back then the boats were, the ships were smaller. He said, we need 600 ships. And it was people like John Stennis, who I would like to someday have the same position that he had as chairman of the Armed Services Committee. People like John Stennis, who said, we will help you get 600 ships. Guess how many we got? We got 599. We didn't quite get to, to 600 during the Reagan time. But we had strength during Reagan and the four years that succeeded him. 12 years of relative strength. The wall came down. Millions and millions of Europeans who had no freedom were freed. Lech Wałęsa came to see me day before yesterday. Um, anybody want to try? He, he, was the, he was the union guy in Gdansk that led the protest against the communist government and took down the communist government because of Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul. And he came to see me the other day to say, we still need the type of peace through strength that we had with Ronald Reagan. 600 ships, 12 years of peace, cut taxes, revenues grew, and we had peace and prosperity. So that is what I, as is um, a simple, small-town Pontotoc boy, think we need in the United States right now. And so thank you very much. And again, Mr. Pillsbury, Dr. Pillsbury, thank you very much for um, letting me join you. Wow, that was wonderful. I think we would um, love, if we may, to put some questions to you. Would that be, would that be okay? Um, any, anyone want to start off with a, a couple of questions? I see uh, Billy's got a hand up and a gentleman over there. Um, would you be happy to field the questions? Yeah, I have an offer. Uh, I have three copies of the book here. Anyone who asks a question that either Senator Wicker or I cannot answer gets a free book. That okay with you? They're your books. <laughs> now what we could do, we can either do one, you know, one question and the answers, which is kind of slow, or we could take a lot of questions at once, Douglas. Make, take five you, you, at you once? Not. You've done this before. Let's, let's do like four or five questions and then we'll pick the ones we want to answer. <laughs> okay, back in the far left corner, question number one. I can't answer that question, so you get a book. <laughs> uh, no, um, we, we get busy getting ready to do it. We build up our industrial base, and, and that's one of the things that, that we've been successful in doing uh, just this week with our industrial base. We added $3.4 billion on top of what the regular appropriation was to build up our submarine industrial base. So if if a simple guy like Senator Roger Wicker says, we need to start building more ships. The Chinese did 30, we did minus two. The answer usually is, well, you know, actually, I don't, we don't have a place we could build them. So, so what do you do? You get started. Yes, let's, let's uh, expand our shipyards. Let's build the other side of the, uh, of the harbor down there in, in uh, Pascagoula and let's build up our industrial base all over the country. You'll never do it unless you get started. Okay, so we have our first winner. <laughs> Second question, right here in front. Uh, 
The porcupine, I like the analogy of a bear does, you know, you attack a porcupine, that's not good. How is that strategy going if that is such a commerce capital, could be attacked by China? How is, what do we need to do around Taiwan to make them such a big porcupine that, to use your, your analogy, Roger, uh, that they don't want to do that? But how is that going? What is the strategy? Okay, we'll, we'll reserve these questions. Okay, okay. guaranteed answer. Okay, Major. A little, a little different question. I read about this recently. Address, if you will, the declining birth rate and what is in the future for China and, and how they have changed from that one child policy, trying to shift the whole country, how that's going to be influencing these policies in the future. Porcupine and birth rates. Third question. Just following up on that, when we learned after the fact that the Soviet economy was a weak economy, I think with the shadow economy that we're learning about China, Reagan's peace and strength also helped bankrupt the Soviet Union. This could be a twofer. Um, so if you could address that. How do we bankrupt China? I don't think their economy is nearly as powerful as their data suggests. Just like the Soviet Union, we learned, was a paper tiger economically. Three. Oh, Cal. Where does the virus <laughs> okay, that question is so easy that I'm going to let my wife answer that question. It, it, it originated in the lab, and, and um, our own health advisors lied to us about it for years and years. I mean, it really, it's like 98% chance that that is exactly what happened. And you and I and the other taxpayers help pay the bill. We, I've publicly said we need new leadership in this country at the top. So no books so. for Cal? <laughs> Well, you know, he's such a successful attorney. He could, I think he can pay for you answer, it. You answered yeah. the question. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you answered the question. Okay, so, so, so now we got porcupine and we got um, birth rate. Okay, so porcupine, talk about the birth rate. Porcupine, there's something. The birth what? rate. Birth Bur rate. That can't do porcupine first? You can do that first, yeah. Porcupine is a dream. It's an aspiration. It's a really good idea. Taiwan's military doesn't like it. Taiwan's military, which I've been vis visiting a hundred times, they have a concept that we'll hold out about one week, and then you American, now that is Mr. Trump calling. You Americans have to come in and save us immediately. Well, we can't do that, because we agreed under Nixon and Kissinger, and every president has gone along with it, although Trump tried to question it. We don't have interoperability with the Taiwan Armed Forces. Our ships, planes, bombers, Patriot missile people, we can't talk with Taiwan. It's called lack of interoperability. So anonymous forces in our Senate came up with a wonderful idea, strongly support. Don't know if Senator Wicker agrees or not. DOD, our DOD, should report every year whether or not Taiwan's military is making progress toward becoming a porcupine, and it lists 10 things that Taiwan would have to do to be a good porcupine. So far, none of them is being done. So Taiwan's welcome to their attitude. You, know, you Americans take care of China. We're just going to hold out a week. But it's very dangerous for all of us. So Porcupine actually means specific weapons Taiwan would have to buy or develop themselves that they're not doing. We don't want to get in a public, uh, reckless position where we're ordering Taiwan to do better because Xi Jinping can hear this, right? He's going, what? You mean in five years we might have the Roger Wicker porcupine? Gee, I better take action before that happens. We don't want that that hasn't already happened. So this is a big problem. The president of Heritage Foundation and I are going to Taiwan in two weeks, and that's the top of our agenda. Second problem is 
the Biden people have held up a lot of weapons, 15 billion or more, that Taiwan actually paid for. They bought 55 F-16s, most of them have not been transferred to Taiwan. This is really terrible. So birth rate, um, it's really a list of things why China is weaker than it looks. You mentioned it too. I hope that's true. <laughs> It'd be nice if China would collapse or slow down and never surpass us. We're, you know, 21 trillion, they're 15 trillion roughly, but they're on the track to surpass us. So the whole world is gonna know. Number one power in the world is China. Many people think that, almost half the world thinks that now. So yes, I wish the demographics were bad, were worse, but it, if it doesn't happen, if China's economy surpasses us because they have $3 trillion in foreign exchange reserves, which we don't, they can boost themselves out of economic slowdown. It sort of covers your question as well. Would you like to see a DOD annual report on the porcupine strategy and progress toward it? Yes. Do we have a winner with any of these three questions? I just think they were all terrific questions. <laughs> so we got two over here. Chairman? Uh, in regard to Taiwan, could we maintain the one China policy and not work and continue to not recognize Taiwan diplomatically? Well, I've, I've seen it done. It's like baptism by immersion. I've actually seen it done, so I believe in it. Yes, the, um, the president of Taiwan has step foot on American soil, but it was kind of at an international airport, and uh, I went to meet with him. Uh, my idea is you give lip service to the two China policy, and you do everything that you possibly can to make sure communist China knows that we're going to defend our friend without saying it. That's that would be my view. I agree, but I'd just like to add, the number one question right now for any president is the one China policy. And President Trump ran into this. He took a phone call for eight minutes with the president of Taiwan at the time. During the transition, he was president-elect. And he announced it, I was actually in Trump Tower <laughs> a week later, so I'm exempt from blame. But the New York Times blamed him. This was the biggest blunder in American history to take a phone call from the president of Taiwan. So Trump wanted to bring the Chinese to Mar-a-Lago. He had the concept that I'm going to have man-to-man -man conversation with Xi Jinping at my home in Mar-a-Lago, not the White House. So he invited Xi Jinping while he was still president-elect. Chinese came and delegation came, said, no, we're not coming until Trump apologizes to China for that phone call. So your question never got answered, but Trump made some progress. He said, let me get this straight. He had meetings with so-called China experts. He said, let me get this straight. We don't recognize Taiwan as a country. I said, that's right, they're not a country. We don't have an embassy there. I said, that's right, we don't have an embassy there. We don't have a defense treaty? Nope. Do we have any you know, ammunition and, and bases and troops and Army, Navy, Air Force? I said, no, sir, we do not. He said, well, I want to get him to Mar-a-Lago. I said, well, do you want to apologize? And I cannot give his answer because it, <laughs> <laughs> it made me blush. So he solved this six weeks into his presidency with a press release. I have spoken to Xi Jinping yesterday, and at his request, at his request, I've agreed to abide by our one China policy. 
And the Chinese came to us and said, what's this our one China policy? You have to have the one China policy of Nixon, Ford, everybody else. And the answer was, it's up to you. We're not going to define our one China policy. So we opened the kind of flexibility to do more, just as you're saying, to do more to help defend Taiwan and other things. But the reason you earned the free book, it's the number one issue. Chinese know it. A few Americans know it. Almost nobody knows that the one China policy is really uh, a subject for negotiation with the next president. Congratulations. Lady at the back has been very patient. With the espionage, how quickly is the government and the other entities able to pivot once that happens, especially since they're able to get a hold of the classified information that is for the military personnel and the type of materials that they have? <laughs> uh, first of all, be sure you get a free copy of our Heritage Report here. Uh, Winning the, new cold, winning the new Cold War, because we have 100 policy proposals to help senators like Senator Wicker. Heritage decided to go around the Congress and the think tanks and get the top issues that we'd have to act on to win the next Cold War. This espionage question came up again and again and again. The problem is, A, the FBI needs more money. FBI directors testified many times now about Chinese espionage, especially against our military. And they're succeeding. They're recruiting uh, agents for money inside the US military. Now, one reason this happens is the, uh, the image China has. As long as they're thought of as a friendly power, and not a big threat, they offer me, I'm a petty officer on board a carrier, and I'm offered a lot of money, and it's sort of trivial, just a couple of documents, that's how it begins. It works. So our image of China in the media, in the academic world, this contributes to the notion that helping China, my goodness, the National Science Foundation is providing all the science. Why can't I, as a military person, provide a few classified documents? That's, that's the mindset. And I, I wish there were a, a way to fix that. Good answer to the question. It, it's tough. Are there any FBI people here? Uh, the local Jackson branch of the FBI is very mindful of the Chinese threat right here in central Mississippi. Yes, sir. Well, I think we're 107. We quit, we quit right at one. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Face is familiar. Manage all of the Chinese that are pouring in the border. How do we get control of that? You know what they're going, they're trying to do. What do we do about it? Well, yes. And uh, the last, the last time I was at the border, yeah, they, they've got, they've got a whole holding cell just for the Chinese. They've got another whole holding cell just for the Iranians. I mean, it's amazing. So uh, it only takes three or four Iranians for a total disaster. So the, the, way, the way we do it is the way uh, Trump did it successfully for a long time, and, and that's basically close off the border. So, um, yes, it, it's, it, it's not just folks coming up from the um, Latin American triangle. It, it's, it's people that got a nice um, business class plane ticket over to Central America and came right up and and uh, they're, they're not economic refugees. So, it's up to you. These people have worked here. Cal. Cal, um, do you want to come and give the vote of thanks? Yeah, yeah. Good, wonderful.
All right, we'll close it on that note. And uh, Douglas wanted me to remind everybody, you've got I Love Mississippi stickers on there. You've got envelopes to help support. And thank you again for being here. These are great programs. We've had some fabulous uh, uh, Daniel Hannon, Douglas Murray, uh, Riley Gaines, uh, Betsy DeVos, and this is just, this is another great one to have. So thank you very much. All right, our speaker has requested a closing prayer, and I would uh, welcome that opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much. If y'all will help, uh, if y'all will bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we again pause to just come to you with uh, excitement that we live in a country that uh, we can come and talk about problems and issues and that we can work hard to try to solve them. Uh, there are a lot of hurdles, and Lord, they, uh, we see in a lot of different places that... Uh, We've turned our back on you, but we just pray that you would um, give, us, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us courage to stand up. Continue to give Roger Wicker a leadership position, if you will, in our Senate so that he can fight these battles that we've discussed. And just pray that uh, uh, you would give, give Michael an opportunity to continue this leadership as we face these issues with China. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, come alongside us, point us in the right direction, guide us in ways that uh, you want us to serve, even if it's in a much smaller area than these two gentlemen. Thank you for their wives that have supported them. Thank you for, again, for a country that we live in where we can uh, have the freedoms that we've had. We just pray that you would continue to bless this country, bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.